The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Hear now God's word from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 14. <clears throat> Christ from his heavenly throne has poured out the Holy Spirit on his assembled church, and they have been declaring the mighty deeds of God in the languages of the gathered peoples around the Mediterranean uh, basin and beyond. Uh, and, and now the meaning of it all is made clear as the Apostle Peter stands to speak. Hear God's word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This far God's word. Let's ask him to write it into our hearts. Father, this is such a rich and full text. Give us tender hearts and open ears to hear what you have to show us from this text in these few moments of meditation today, we pray. Write even more deeply into our hearts that strong conviction that you have made the crucified one, the one who went to the cross for our sins, both Lord and Christ, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And may we be those who are first to bow the knee and first to open our mouths to confess the victories of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is the first sermon after the king's coronation. This is the first sermon that we hear after the celebration of Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit from his throne at the Father's right hand. It is a pattern, it's a paradigm, it sets an agenda for the preaching of the church as we will hear it throughout the book of Acts and for the preaching of the church in every century. Uh, In fact, it's a sermon that deserves several sermons, but I'm going to try to focus our attention on just a few things from this whole text in the moments we have. Three things, really. The source is scripture, the center is Christ, the time is now. The source is scripture, you notice that. We'd heard it, some of us, a year or so ago in Acts 1, that already before Pentecost arrived, the apostles were learning to read scripture the way he had, Jesus had been teaching them over that 40-day period, period between his resurrection and his ascension. And actually, throughout his earthly ministry, he kept saying to them, scripture needs to be fulfilled in my suffering and in my resurrection. Uh, we know of the accounts in Luke 24 where he took two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then a larger group through the whole scriptures. And we saw in Acts 1 that Peter was beginning to read the Psalms at least now as foretelling the sufferings of Christ in the betrayal of Judas and the necessity for Judas to be replaced by another. But now Peter really turns to texts of scripture and you heard the quotes from Psalm 16, first from Joel 2 and then Psalm 16 and finally Psalm 110. The message is from the word of God. It's from the word of God that God had spoken to Israel in the Old Testament. Peter explains the phenomena by which the Holy Spirit displayed his arrival in last day's power on this day of the first fruits, this day of Pentecost, by looking again and again to the Old Testament to provide the pattern that makes sense of current events. So he turns to Joel 2. He says, you realize some of you don't understand the languages being spoken here, but it's not new wine. It's the power of the Spirit coming to enable all of God's people to prophesy, to speak his word, to speak, as had been said in these early verses of Acts 2, the mighty deeds of God in the dialects of the nations. All of God's people. The Holy Spirit clearly was active in the Old Testament. We know from the reality of the fact that every human heart descended from Adam is born dead in sin 
Only Jesus is the exception there. We're all dead in sin. If any human heart, any time, were to come to faith in the promises of God, it has to be because the Spirit of God is quietly at work behind the scenes, giving life to the dead. Abraham, David, the servant girl in the house of the Syrian general, Naaman, if they came to faith, if Naaman came to faith, as he apparently did, it was because the Spirit was at work. But in some ways, the Spirit held back his gifts in the Old Testament. He didn't give all the gifts for speaking the word of God and all the gifts for ruling and protecting God's people and all the gifts for approaching his presence to everybody. Prophets and kings and priests were actually few and far between. But now, but now, Peter says what God promised through the prophet Joel is happening. God's people are speaking the mighty deeds of God. And not only is there an expansion in the number of speakers, of messengers, there's an expansion in the number of hearers. And that's why this prophetic gift comes at this moment in this unusual form where the mighty deeds of God are being spoken in all these different languages of all the nations. It's, it's a preview of the age that is now dawning in which now the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth as Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 to all the nations, to make us disciples, as Jesus promised in Matthew 28, to speak the heart language of all the peoples of the world, as John saw in the vision of Revelation 7, people of every tribe and tongue gathered around the throne of God. And so God gave this extraordinary ability at that moment to enable unlettered Galileans, no doubt the majority of the 120 waiting there were Galileans, unlettered Galileans to speak the international languages of the ancient world. Scripture told us it would happen, Peter says, Joel 2. And then Psalm 16, well actually, to explain what's going on, Peter has to take his listeners back several steps. So as you notice, he begins <coughs> in verse 22 to take them back to the earthly ministry of Jesus, to the miracles that marked him as the Messiah, but then to the fact that those who witnessed those miracles, so many ignored them. And he says to the crowds, you instigated lawless men, that is Gentiles, outside of God's law given to Moses. You instigated Gentiles to nail Jesus. Particular word for crucify that he uses here, to nail Jesus and kill him. But then his resurrection, the third day, before his corpse could be touched by corruption, his holy, as God's holy one is taken out of the grave and brought back to life. And Peter says, this was all told us in scripture. Psalm 16, which doesn't fit David's experience. We all know that so very well. David's tomb is still with us. Open the tomb and you will presumably see the bones. No, David, this doesn't fit David, but David was a prophet. And he saw of one who would not be touched by corruption because he was God's absolutely holy one. Psalm 16. But not only was Jesus raised from the dead, he was exalted to God's right hand. And so Peter concludes with Psalm 110. Jesus was enthroned at the right hand of God. Not only is he 
enthroned at the right hand of God, he is declared to be Lord of all. David's Lord. Jesus had used this text to prod some of his critics to wonder, could the Messiah simply be David's human descendant? Because sons are supposed to be submissive to their fathers. But here David says his son, his descendant, is his Lord over him. Peter says, well, of course, it's because he's not merely David's human descendant. He is the divine son, the Lord of all. So it's all sourced in scripture. And it's all centered in Christ. Each of these is worth pondering for many more minutes than we have. But just notice the great events of Jesus' life that Peter talks about. The Father's attestation of Jesus through the wonders and signs that was, were given to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Wonders and signs picked out of that Joel 2 prophecy. Now the wonders and signs show that Jesus is attested by the Father. And of course then the signs accompanying Jesus' death, the darkening of the sky, and the earthquake accompanying his resurrection, all pointing to the reality that he is the true Messiah sent by the Father. As Jesus said in John 5, the works that the Father has given to me are those that bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the Father bore witness to the Son in his miracles. But Peter's listeners ignored the witness. In fact, Peter says, you instigated the Gentiles. Notice the Jewish people instigated Jesus' death, but the Gentile powers implemented Jesus' death. Nobody can point the finger at anybody else and says it was you, not me. No, the whole human race is involved. The church at prayer in Acts 4 will say the same thing again as they think about and pray through Psalm 2. Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, a putatively Jewish king, Herod, uh, and a Gentile ruler, Pontius Pilate, they were all in the conspiracy to ignore God's testimony about Jesus. And that testimony leaves them without excuse. They're guilty, we're guilty, because our sin was culpable as well. And yet notice that when our human race, the whole race, participated together in executing our rightful ruler, though we were violating clearly God's revealed standard, we were certainly not thwarting God's plan. As Peter says, it was by your definite plan and foreknowledge that Jesus was handed over. This did not take you by surprise. This did not take God by surprise. The church says the same thing in its prayer in Acts 4. These groups that came together against Jesus came together to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. It was all planned by the Father. That's why it's revealed in the scriptures. Because God wanted his people to know the plan that his dear son would die in the place of guilty rebels and at the hands of guilty rebels. But of course that's not the end of the story. And Peter focuses more than anything else really on the resurrection, doesn't he? Verses 24 through 32 are all about the resurrection. God raised him from the dead. Psalm 16 is at the heart of it. But actually there's another allusion to another couple of psalms that he introduces Psalm 16 with. And that is in that phrase in verse 24, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Psalm 
18 and in Psalm 116, the psalmist uses this imagery of being tied down by death pangs, wrapped up. It's almost the kind of imagery that you hear in Jonah's mouth, in Jonah 2, when Jonah thinks about his near-drowning experience, surrounded by death. But, but Peter says death couldn't keep its grip on Jesus. It had no right to hold him. He's the Holy One. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. But Jesus didn't earn those wages. We did. He accepted our wages voluntarily, but death couldn't hold him. So he emerged victoriously from the grave. He was raised from the dead the third day. Before corruption could set in, he was set on high. He's the true holy one. Yes, David is on occasion called the man after God's heart. 1 Samuel 13 and Acts 13 actually repeats that comment. But we know David is not the holy one. Death kept its grip on David and will till the last day when Jesus returns. And then David, who trusts Jesus, will rise as we who trust Jesus will rise. But death couldn't grip, hold Jesus even for three days. It had to let him go. He was raised from the dead. And now he reigns at God's right hand. So finally, he reigns at God's right hand. And finally, in verse 33... Peter ties the two strands of the story together. You remember, his hearers are wondering what is going on with this sound of the rushing wind and especially with the sound of all these languages being spoken. How did these unlearned Galileans learn all these international languages that people here are are learning? How can that happen? Peter quotes from Joel 2 and then it almost seems as if he forgets their question. What's up with this display of the Spirit's coming in prophetic international speech. But finally he gets back to it and he says, this has happened because Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the one who's received the promise of the Spirit to display and to pour out upon his church and to give them, as we read in Acts 2, verse 4, as the Holy Spirit give them utterance, give them the ability to speak the words of God. Jesus reigns at God's right hand and now pours out the Spirit to enable all of his people to bear witness to him. Not all forever continue in the office of prophet. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't all continue as prophets forever, but we all share in Christ's anointing as prophet, priests, and king. As the Heidelberg Catechism so wisely says, we all be share in Christ's anointing. So we speak of his favor and of his grace and of his glory. So the time is now. The time is now. God has kept his promise to David to put David's son on David's throne, but it's not a throne on earth. It's not a throne in Jerusalem, that sort of mid-range, Middle Eastern capital in a tiny country. No, the real throne is in heaven. And God has kept his promise to David by putting the king on the throne in heaven. John the baptizer was right. The kingdom of God was about to break in. Jesus was absolutely right when he said to people who heard him speak, people today living are not going to die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And this day it's come in power. In the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling the church to bear witness to the world. The son of David is on the throne. 
The last days have dawned. That's why Peter, if you look at Joel 2 and compare how Peter quotes him, he tweaks it a little with Holy Spirit-inspired authority. Joel says, it will happen after this, says God, I will pour out my spirit. Peter says, in the last days, the last days have dawned. The time is now. Christ is enthroned. And the time is now for us to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm actually saving the response of the listeners in the next text for another meditation later this semester. Stay tuned, right? More suspense. Um, But in our text, in our text is already the invitation that Peter will extend to them because that last verse that Peter quotes from Joel 2 says it shall come to pass, this is verse 21 in our text, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Peter will invite and summon his hearers to do. That's what we're invited to do, to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. From the way he talks to them, it's evident that though some of them may have come as pilgrims just for this first fruits feast over these last seven weeks, Many of them were residents in Jerusalem. Many of them had been present seven weeks earlier at Passover. Many of them had lifted up their voices at the instigation of their leaders and cried out, crucify, crucify him. Peter says, you instigated the Romans to put him to death. And from their reaction, we see they were pierced. They were culpable. They were guilty. But now God says, that same voice that cried crucify, now use it in a different way. Call out. Call out to the Lord for salvation. And that's his promise to us. Call out to the Lord for rescue, for forgiveness, for strength. In all the ways that we know we're weak, to look to him for strength. And his commission through us, he's calling out through us to the nations of the world. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us, for calling us in the gospel, for calling us by name in that personal application of the gospel that your Holy Spirit works when he draws us out of death and into life, when he replaces stony hearts with hearts of flesh tender to your word as the Father sovereignly summons us into his favor and mercy through the gospel. Father, we thank you that our word, the word you give us is not a word of our own invention, but it is all sourced in your scripture, that we speak on your behalf because we speak your very words, which are reliable, unlike our wisdom and our best guesses. Your word is utterly reliable. And thank you that we have so great a savior to proclaim at the center of the message of good news. Teach our hearts to be calling on the Lord every moment, every hour. Use us to call others to call on the Lord for salvation as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.